Hi, this is Hold Your Fire, a podcast by the International Crisis Group. I'm Richard Atwood. Today, we're going to do something a little bit different. I'm extremely happy to welcome onto the show Mark Mallett-Brown, who since 2021 has been president of the Open Society Foundations. Mark is also a trustee of the International Crisis Group. In fact, he's one of our founders and for many years has been a chair or co-chair of Crisis Group's board. He's also been UN Deputy Secretary General, the head of the UN Development Programme and for years worked at the World Bank. Mark, welcome on. Thanks very much for joining. Thanks, Richard. So, Mark, I'm hoping today to take advantage of your many years experience, particularly now at the helm of the Open Society Foundations, to talk about some of the challenges the world's facing, some of the challenges you face leading an organization, defending open societies around the world. Could we start, though, in a week's time, you'll be headed to the Munich Security Conference, where world leaders and others will gather to talk about the state of the world. It will be a meeting inevitably, I think, overshadowed by Ukraine, as indeed last year's meeting was. What do you expect from the discussions there? Well, Richard, thanks. Last year, it was four days before the Russian invasion, when you know the compelling discussion was, will they, won't they? And as the conference wore on, it became very clear they would invade. And I expect this year, there's a little bit of a premature hope that somehow this can be the beginning of the return to the rule of law and some kind of normality in Europe. I don't want to spoil the party, but I think we're a long way from that. I think this war you know, is at a particularly fragile moment. We're speaking the day after President Zelensky visited London for what was a dramatically successful visit by its own terms, a bravura performance in front of MPs and peers in the Palace of Westminster, a very successful visit to see the new king, King Charles. And all through wonderful use of language, even though he is not an English speaker, obviously acceptance of very much a second language, but whether it was saying that he understood the king was a former Air Force pilot and that in Ukraine, every Air Force pilot is a king, or asking for wings. It was a hugely successful visit, and Britain is often impressed by a war leader. But behind it, lies a very different situation, a real vulnerability now that sheer Russian numbers and Russian strategic patience start to prevail over this extraordinarily plucky performance by Ukraine, but where they're short of tanks, they're short of the rockets they need to take the conflict back into the Russian supply chains and obviously short of the planes he was asking for. So, you know, far from this conflict, having reached a permanent stalemate, Munich appears against a backdrop of continuing uncertainty about where this goes next. And Mark, do you think complacency is really setting in in Western capitals? Before the winter, Moscow was maybe hoping for a cold winter, shortages of energy to sort of erode Western unity, erode some of the determination that Europe's had to continue supporting Ukraine. But in fact, that hasn't really happened. We've still seen a very united West. In the end, the Germans, Chancellor Olaf Scholz, has agreed to provide, let other countries provide their leopard tanks and certainly support in the US after Zelensky's visit, but even before, seemed pretty strong. Are you worried about Western commitment? Well, I think... President Zelensky is absolutely right to focus on it. It is a critical front to the war to keep that Western support. 
you're right. I don't think there's any big hole in it. It was a less dramatic winter than had been anticipated in terms of energy use and energy price, etc. And it's clear there are enough Republicans in Washington who are going to continue to support a strong response to the Russian intervention that President Biden will be able to remain directly on policy. And I think similarly, Chancellor Schultz, President Macron, who also have had a visit from Zelensky as of all the EU leaders. Now, you know, all of those people are going to stay on side. But the issue is still the constraint of an understandable reluctance to escalate this war means that it always seems to be half a step behind Ukraine's needs, the level of military support. And then there is a massive economic dimension to this, which is the reconstruction costs are now into the hundreds of billions. No obvious place where those resources are going to come from, let alone when such an effort could start. So, you know, this remains a much more fragile situation than, if you like, the complacency of the commentary that at the worst, this is a stalemate. And at best, Russia has been humiliated and this could be over any time. I don't think that's the case. I think this remains a very dangerous situation for Ukraine and for the West. So we'll come back to the Ukraine war, its ramifications in different parts of the world and Western policy a bit later. But well, could we move first to OSF's bread and butter, supporting open societies around the world? So we're well into now what people are calling a democratic recession. The extraordinary spread of democracies around and after the end of the Cold War seems now a, a long time away. Freedom House, an organization which, as you know, tracks this stuff, said in a particularly gloomy annual report last year that the enemies of liberal democracy are accelerating their attacks. The global order is nearing a tipping point. If defenders of democracy don't work together, the authoritarian model will prevail. And Freedom House has tracked, I think now, 16 consecutive years of decline in what it calls global freedom, something that applies across all regions of the world. It applies to long-standing democracies in the West and to others. So what's going on? I mean, how can we best explain this? Yeah, no, look, I think it's for us after early years and, you know, OSF and Crisis Group are of a similar age and both in a sense, OSF is a bit older, but we, society is a bit older, but we have a similar roots and antecedents in the final years of communism in the Eastern Central Europe and in the Soviet Union itself. And then the dramatic expansion of freedom that followed that and Similarly, the end of apartheid in South Africa, which Open Society was also deeply involved in. So, you know, we had this strong early life with tailwinds and the rest, and now we face very difficult headwinds. And I think if you step back from it and look at the sort of sweep of history, we came out of a period where a Western model championed by leaders like Margaret Thatcher and Ronald Reagan really had triumphed around this formula of small government and big markets, if I can call it that. And you know that wave of market-driven economic growth came with all the zeal of a convert to Central and Eastern Europe after its liberation from communism, to Southern Africa, to other regions. And the spokesmen and disciples of this were institutions like the World Bank and the IMF. And the attractions were, if you pick up this model of market reforms and liberal democracy, you get into the EU or you get more financial support from the West. So it was a heady period where 
you know, all the activism of people in these societies briefly coincided with the pressure coming for very different rationales and strategic reasons from Western leaders. This was the sort of victory dance of the post-communist moment, if you like. And the most exuberant champions of it even declared history dead. You know, this was felt to be an order which was going to last forever. And for George Soros, he never believed that for a moment. He always saw within market fundamentalism, as he called it, the roots of its own failure, failure to deal with issues of inequality, of government capacity and competence to address issues. And then, you know, latterly, we've seen massive big external problems grow up like climate change. And this small government model has looked increasingly out of place not just in democracies, but obviously in authoritarian regimes as well. So, you know, I suspect we're moving towards an era of bigger government again, as it addresses problems of exclusion at home and big public goods problems like climate abroad. And as it does that, I think we're going to see a competition between an authoritarian model, which won't be the cartoon version of a kind of Trump or a Bolsonaro populism, but pretty serious government, which takes a long-term strategic view of fixing problems, the sort of Chinese version, if you like, of authoritarianism, versus a democratic option, which has huge built-in advantages that, you know, when you don't like what this lot do, you can kick them out of office at the next election and get a better team in. And that allows renewal and reimagining of the vision of government in a much more continuous way than the authoritarian one. But what Democrats have to show is that they have that strategic discipline and long-term perspective that, you know, has served China so well. So I think we're entering a period of real competition about ideas and what future government is going to look like. In some ways, Mark, tell me if this is wrong, there are as you say, these structural challenges to democracy, that the Western models may be less attractive, maybe the traditional linking of democratic reform with neoliberalism hasn't helped. But then there are these more immediate challenges that, as you say, in many countries, new democracies, countries moving away from one party, one person rule, people's expectations of what democracy can deliver have been disappointed. You also have some of the challenges in Western democracies themselves, parties emerging on the far right, populists who in some cases don't seem committed to democratic norms and institutions. And some of the leaders that have emerged can seem cartoonish in their incompetence, even if their impact on the democracies is still dangerous. But you also have some pretty serious leaders. I mean, in China, as you say, Modi in India, who has arguably gone some way to erode Indian democracy, but it's hard to argue that he's incompetent. Consistently polls at over 70%, leaders that have overseen in some cases remarkable growth and their rhetoric and to some degree the reality of their rule has sort of often focused on economic or social rights rather than civil and political. Well, I think you're absolutely right, Richard, to take this conversation towards this category of serious authoritarian leaders rather than cartoonish ones, because it's very convenient to believe every authoritarian is a Trump or a Bolsonaro, because then you can laugh them off. They're an exception. They'll go. But actually, you know, the forces that cartoonish ones or serious ones have unleashed run deep in society. There are a lot of people who feel left out by the recent 
democratic dispensation in their countries. And it's not just groups, say, take United States for a moment. It's not just groups who traditionally felt excluded, people of color, for example, and particularly African-Americans. It's going past that to new groups of excluded, like a white working class who'd enjoyed good union salaries. And as America transitions from being an industrial economy to more of a service economy, the job security, the quality of those jobs, the quality of them and their families' lives all seems to be on the line. And by the way, I should add, those people who are affected by that, when they look to their representatives in Washington, it's easy to understand how they can see both parties' structures in Washington as self-serving elites, a sort of drain-the-swamp imagery of Donald Trump really cut through to a lot of Americans who look at the revolving door of people from the two parties going into lobbying, then into government, back to lobbying. And in that environment, trust in both the honesty of democratic government and its efficacy, its delivery, has got incredibly diminished. And it's really important that those of us who believe in democracy are very clear-eyed about that. Because as I say, we tend to hide behind the caricature, you know, that the Trumps of this moment are an accident of history, a moment that'll pass. And we fail to grip the fact that unless democracy delivers for people in an inclusive way that improves their lives, there are alternatives out there. And for OSF, or for that matter, if you're a liberal Western politician, where is the main battleground? Where do you push back? Is it trying to tackle non-democratic forces in established democracies in the West? Or is it a struggle against these new authoritarians? Or is it more quietly supporting reformers in newer democracies? I think the fight happens at all levels. But, you know, there are a couple of points one has to make. First, if one's going to deliver for people in terms of a democracy that works, it's got to include a functioning multilateral system because so many issues are above and beyond borders now, climate most strikingly, but migration, the regulation of AI, you name it. There are a whole growing range of issues which need global collaborative action to address. You've then got the national level, but I think for us, although we invest heavily in our you know, home country of the US around the quality of democracy here. You know, we're equally anxious to see it enhanced around the world. We are very proud of being a global foundation. And we realize that a sort of US-driven messaging about democracy carries its own problems today. Democracy, in the eyes of many, has been a sort of label and flag borrowed by US policymakers for an agenda which is as much about American national self-interest as it is about the value of the democracy to the people being preached to. And so, you know, a much more homegrown legitimacy for democracy, whether it is in India or across Africa or Latin America, is, I think, absolutely critical. We can't leave democracy as a sort of Western promoted concept. If it's to prevail, it needs a very strong, legitimate Indian face or Brazilian face or South African face to it, which is relevant to the issues of those societies. Clearly, that would be steered by people in those societies themselves. But might that in some cases look 
back to basics. I mean, rather than particular individual rights, it's more of a focus on getting a democracy to deliver on things like jobs, education, health. Is that a balance that your foundations are having to strike in different parts of the world? Well, I think if you look at the Human Rights Council, which is in a sense a little bit of a focus group of what's top of mind for countries on human rights, there's no doubt that partly stirred up by China, but with, you know, I think a wider base of support than that, that social and economic rights are kind of getting driven more into the limelight and sometimes at the expense of political and civil because those social and economic, as you've suggested, are much more collective in character versus the individual nature of freedom of speech or the right to vote, etc. And so in that sense, I think there is a rebalancing being attempted. And I think it's critical for open society that, you know, we both accept the legitimacy of that social and economic agenda. I come from a development background, I believe passionately in those social and economic rights, but that they don't become an either or to the political and civil Once people feel that their economic rights are secured, they're actually going to be much more attentive to their political rights. We see it when countries start to develop and grow a middle class, that the agitation for more freedom of speech, for ensuring that the ballot is sacrosanct and the result honoured, all these things tend to go with their economic life being secure and more comfortable. Now, there are plenty of countries where the sequence happens the other way around, and there are plenty of very poor human rights champions who want the political and civil even before the economic. But I think you get my point that for us, these two things are not divisible. They're not either ors. They go hand in hand. And that must be the argument that we and our grantees seek to make in any debate about human rights. So it would be easy to see, based on the Freedom House data that I talked about, based on some of what you've said, to imagine this inexorable authoritarian advance. But 2022, just last year, was a bit of a mixed bag. Now, I mean, we talked about this on the show a couple of weeks ago. If you look across at some of the sort of leading strongmen rulers, Mohammed bin Salman in Saudi Arabia came out of the year quite well. President Biden was forced to make up with him, having initially threatened to make him a pariah. Recep Tayyip Erdogan in Turkey also didn't have a bad year abroad. He helped broker this with the UN, this um, this Black Sea grain deal that got some Ukrainian grain onto global markets, even at home. His numbers seem to have picked up, although we'll see what happens after this terrible earthquake. Prime Minister Narendra Modi, as we talked about, still popular. Benjamin Netanyahu was back atop this far-right government in Israel. On the other hand, President Putin had a a pretty disastrous year, even if, as you say, the Ukraine war was far from over. Bolsonaro lost out in Brazil. And even Xi Jinping had a bit of a mixed year. The party conference that confirmed his grip on power, but his signature COVID policy turned out to be a mess and unpopular, although admittedly his government seems to have now recalibrated. So it is a bit of a mixed bag. Plus, maybe to say that Many of the problems that you identified, particularly the economic problems, people being left behind, those aren't getting any better. So what should we make of this picture? Well, I think some analysts' attempts to present this in the sort of Manichaean struggle of authoritarianism versus democracy and apply it to every election that comes along are forgetting the other fact about elections, which is often incumbency is very uncomfortable, particularly coming off the back of COVID and the economic stress and strains that so many countries are under. 
is not just simply isn't a good time for incumbents. And so you've seen some right-wing governments elected in Israel, Sweden, Italy, for example, and that's because they threw out incumbents to their left. And similarly, you've seen a right-wing incumbent in Bolsonaro thrown out and replaced by a government to the left. So I think instead of subscribing to a view that it's some massive historical force playing itself out here, I think perhaps the narrower, more forensic point to make is that while you have countries where one side of the political aisle remains in the hands of parties that are not actually very democratic, that don't accept the rules of the game, are willing to put people on the street or into the halls of their Congress to try and challenge an election outcome. When you have that kind of political system, you're always going to be vulnerable because, you know, politics, electoral politics is a pendulum. The sort of throw the rascals out after a bad recession means the other side come in, whatever their shortcomings. So I think the longer term goal for a organization like ours is to try and support and we should be modest about what we can achieve on our own but is to try and support you know decent parties committed to democracy on both sides of the political aisle in countries you're going to have a permanently unstable situation if there's only one party embracing democracy and you know that's the difficulty at the moment in the united states you know you have a republican party which extraordinarily for the world's leading democracy you have one of the two main political parties which you can't put your hand on your heart and say it's democratic they tried to get a bunch of secretaries of state and election officials elected in the midterms as a precursor to potentially trying to steal the US presidential election in 2024. So while that kind of threat remains alive, we simply can't relax about the preservation of democracy. In that sense, the Biden administration, I think its defining principle on the world stage is probably the competition with China, but its rhetorical framing is democracies versus autocracies. It seems to be something that President Biden himself feels quite strongly And obviously, this jars to some degree with the fact that the struggle is also at home. But I wonder also how that sits alongside the world you talked about with these challenges that go beyond any one country. In the end, the US and China are going to have to work together on climate change, on addressing some of the economic challenges that will come to in a moment spawned by the war in Ukraine. What do you make of that frame? Is that useful coming from the US? Well, look, as I've said, I think coming from US spokesman, the democracy versus authoritarian doesn't carry the force it would if it came from places like India, for example. And of course, the Indian government wouldn't be a plausible deliverer of that message anyway at the moment. But I think the fact of US-China competition, you know, we may wish it to go away, but it's not going to. It is, you know, one of the absolute structural features of the political order in which we are going to live in the coming years. I think the question is, Can it be managed down to a point where the competition and potentially even conflict does not derail areas where a shared globe requires us to collaborate? So is it possible at the same time that there is fierce competition on trade or even security challenge and confrontation in the South China Sea, is it still possible in a period like that 
to still collaborate at the United Nations or in the corridors of the multilateral development banks around climate policy and funding or around, and this I think is less likely, regulatory regimes for AI, etc. That's going to be the challenge for diplomats. We don't have the luxury of, if you like, the Cold War era, where there just wasn't the trade links and the innovation links that tie us together, China and the West, whether it's over chip manufacture and design, over more routine import-export sectors, over financial reserves and where they are. These are entwined economies and going the full logic of President Biden's friendshoring and disentangling these economies would make both much poorer places. And so somehow we've got to get to a point, a balance point, where it's possible to collaborate around certain issues while at the same time contesting others. So, Mark, I'd like to talk to you a little bit about what's been a recurrent theme on the podcast this past year and something that I know you've also spoken a lot about, which is the response in other parts of the world, in the global south especially, to the war in Ukraine and what that says about relations between Western capitals and others across the world. I think from our perspective, we're always careful not to portray non-Western capitals as sort of somehow in Russia's camp. I mean, certainly the people we speak to around the world have a great deal of sympathy for Ukraine. But they also feel a responsibility to protect their own citizens in a time of political and and economic turbulence. They want to be able to define their interests on their own terms, not as part of competition between the West and Russia or, for that matter, the West and China. So the response, I think, we see mostly rooted in how leaders across the world see their interests. But the response has also revealed a degree of upset in non-Western capitals at the West at perceptions of double standards insufficient attention to the economic fallout from the war, the jitters in markets, the price hikes, which people perceive rightly or wrongly as triggered by sanctions as well as by the war itself. So do you think that, broadly speaking, do you think that Western capitals have been able to calibrate over the past year and address some of those concerns? Look, I think the West has been guilty in the eyes of the rest of portraying a war in Europe as somehow, you know, a war of world consequence. And this has gone down very badly with the rest, if you like, who accept that it is an extraordinary breach of sovereignty, an extraordinary breach of the UN Charter, and that Putin should be condemned for that, but who are anxious to see the West look beyond it to not to walk away from the response to Ukraine, but to add to it a much more robust response to the problems that this has magnified and generated around the rest of the world, the debt crisis, the food and energy price crisis, the rest. And I think, you know, in a sense, this is a war in Europe, but it's fought on a world stage for a world audience. And whether it was Zelensky's trip to Europe this week or to the US before his attempt to reach out and address by Zoom the African Union at one point and and many other international audiences. There is, I think, a Ukrainian recognition that the theatre of global public opinion, you know, is a very important one in which this whole contest is being fought out. But ultimately, it's not 
Zelensky making his case that this is a kind of modern form of colonialism and imperialism by Russia that is going to persuade developing countries to stay on side. It's that the developed world is showing enough bandwidth to be able to both prosecute its support for Zelensky in Ukraine and at the same time address this growing economic crisis beyond. And if you can't manage that sort of walk and chew gum challenge at the same time, you will see a steady erosion of the Western position in forums like the United Nations. Mark, do you think it is a walk and chew gum problem and that it's possible to do both at the same time? Or is there an element of chewing gum and eating ice cream that there's an element of contradiction between, let's say, something like the sanctions? I know there's carve outs for grain and fertilizer and for other things, but they still make companies nervous and maybe did contribute to at least the initial hikes in food and fuel prices. Well, look, I think it's both the impact of the sanctions. It's the fact that when Ukraine comes begging for more economic assistance or more military assistance, the West jumps to attention and provides it, even if not completely on the scale hoped for. Uh, whereas, you know, the money for climate change years go by and commitments are not met and there's a sort of steady drip drip of loss of confidence. And so certainly one of the things we're trying to do is spur, trigger, advocate for, push a much more ambitious climate and development agenda, a lot of it through the so-called Bridgetown agenda under the leadership of the Barbadian Prime Minister, Mia Motley. But whether it's her work or the work to increase the capital adequacy of the World Bank, which is a sort of G20-driven project, there are things out there which, if they were addressed with sufficient energy and political will, could start to bring some very much needed relief to developing countries around debt and financing, etc. And I think it's the West showing its herd that it's really jumping on this agenda and moving it forward, which matters. And I think there's one final point, which is, if there's any silver lining in all of this, it's, you know, there'd be no talk of UN reform for years. Now, the United States, President Biden has said, let's look at UN Security Council reform, uh, driven, of course, by the obstinate Russian use of its veto to protect its criminal law-breaking acts in Ukraine. And so, you know, suddenly life is stirring in that big cause of multilateral reform. And if at the same time, the pressure to do something for the rest of the world, not just Ukraine, turns into increased money flows for climate change and development. Something will also stir in the world of the multilateral development banks and the Bretton Woods institutions. So, you know, the moment is not without hope. There are some glimmers of opportunity which need to be seized by imaginative leadership and really run with. And on Security Council reform, do you see that the increased attention is actually going to result in something? I mean, even leaving aside the divisions within regions, is it Brazil, Argentina or Mexico that qualify for a new Security Council seat? Or is it India or Japan or Egypt, Nigeria or South Africa? But even leaving aside those sort of intra-regional questions, don't Russia and China also have to be on board? Similarly, with debt, I mean, so much debt is now tied up in non-Western capitals. I mean, this has to be a wider discussion within the G20. It's hard to see efforts to address poor countries' debt crises without China on board. 
I think on debt, definitely not. And a very interesting innovation is a meeting is shortly going to happen in Bangalore, India, hosted by the Indians as the G20 chairs. But, you know, really the brainchild of Kristalina Georgieva, the IMF managing director, and sold by her to the Chinese as a debt forum in which these issues of, of debt burden sharing amongst creditors need to be tackled with, you know, a completeness that has been missing till now where the Chinese have held back from the table and it's been Western creditors who've taken the haircut. And so this is an important step forward. But you're right, Richard, it shows you've got to have China and the G20 at the table. American and Western leadership is not the old school of them just coming to the table and declaring they've decided to do something about the rest of the world to balance out against Ukraine. It's a matter of engaging diplomatically to come at shared solutions. One of the things about the new political order is that the new multilateral system, the reboot of that, will have a much stronger global voice at the table. The Indias and others can no longer be denied their seats at the top table. And, you know, that, of course, is, you know, what's driving the renewed attention to Security Council reform. If you don't have a Security Council which reflects that emerging new order, it will rapidly lose legitimacy. So, Mark, I wanted to come back to where we started the initial discussion about Ukraine. And you've just earlier, and I know some of your public statements have been quite forward-leaning about weapons supplies to Ukraine, about deepening the sanctions, even trying to hold Russian leaders accountable for the crime of aggression, potentially at a special tribunal, potentially even using frozen Russian central bank assets for Ukraine's reconstruction. And I should say that Crisis Group has also generally been quite forward-leaning, not on all those things, but certainly very supportive of Western policy towards Ukraine, sending weapons and money, while at the same time trying to avoid too high a risk of escalation with Moscow. But recently, the UN Secretary General, Antonio Guterres, warned that the world appeared to be heading into a major war. He said, uh, the prospects for peace keep diminishing, the chances of further escalation and bloodshed keep growing. I fear the world's not sleepwalking into a wider war, but is doing so with its eyes wide open. The Biden administration is generally very cautious about this. I mean, I think its instincts on this are pretty good in terms of getting the balance right between supporting Ukraine and avoiding a risk of escalation with Moscow. But do you get a sense that there's a danger that things go too far the other way? I think there's a real risk. I think it is a very careful balancing act. The difficulty is that Putin is simply not accepting that he needs to come to the table and negotiate, or that if he did come, he there's there's no evidence he would negotiate in good faith a sustainable peace agreement. And today, now, any peace agreement would, you know, almost certainly involve Western security guarantees, whether through NATO or other means. So until President Putin or a successor in Russia is seriously willing to live with Ukraine as an independent neighbor, this is going to remain a highly volatile, febrile moment, whether there's sort of ceasefire or not. And so, you know, I fear we're in a situation where you just simply don't have that mutual moment of interest where both sides are willing to come to the table. The Ukrainians, for very good reasons, simply don't trust the word of a Putin regime. And Putin simply doesn't accept that his ambitions to break and incorporate parts of Ukraine into Russia are a historical 
fantasy and fallacy. So that pushes the West towards increasing the weapons supply to Ukraine. But it's a high-risk strategy because it does risk escalation. But I think the difficulty is there's no obvious alternative. I think, you know, you listed a series of potential sanctions, other issues. Like Crisis Group, to be honest, I and OSF, you know, would pick from that menu quite carefully and cautiously. And in my case, as a former UN Deputy Secretary General who learned at the feet of the master, Kofi Annan, I know you've got to be careful not to sort of close people's exit ramps so that they can't get out of a conflict. And there is already with Putin a risk that he's so clearly branded a war criminal that he may feel he has no option but to continue to prosecute this conflict and continue to stay in office at whatever cost to Russia and Russians. And so... It's a very challenging situation. And, you know, this is the price of one of the world's most powerful military states going rogue under a leader who clearly has fallen foul of conspiracies of his own making and those of the coterie around him. But we struggle as an international system as to how to deal with that in a way which brings him to a stop punishes him, but without tipping the world into a wider war. President Putin himself has done quite a good job of blowing up his own off-ramps. And, you know, as you say, he certainly doesn't seem to be looking for an exit, except one on his own terms. But the effort to pursue Russia for what is really the, the fundamental sin of the international system, right, a crime of aggression, maybe through some sort of special tribunal that inevitably would finger Putin himself, Isn't there a danger that that paints him even more into a corner and closes space for a settlement if a window for one were somehow to open? Look, I think it's a very fair question. And I think the crime of aggression has got quite a long journey ahead of it to move from, you know, a concept with advocates pressing for different variations of the model, by the way, there isn't even consensus which model to go with in whether it's under international law, regional law or Ukraine law. There are champions of different variations. The issue is that it's going to take time to establish. And so in that sense, you know, it is offering Putin a space in which to sort of say, if you want that exit ramp still to be available to you, time's running out, the hourglass is running down. So I think, you know, in a way, as a future threat, but a very real one, it may have its place in the repertoire. If it was about to happen today, I'd be a bit warier, but it does have a lead time. Mark, could I end by coming back to something that you talked about a bit at the beginning? The Open Society Foundations are a bit older than Crisis Group, but in some ways the organisations, at least initially, reflected some of the assumptions that prevailed in the immediate post-Cold War period, or at least towards the end of the 1990s, that the world was moving in a certain direction towards justice, towards peace, that democracy, capitalism, prosperity would advance hand in hand across the world. Now, those assumptions clearly now look wrong after the mistakes of the war on terror, the 2008 financial crisis, the wars that followed the Arab Spring, the emergence of Western populism, the pandemic, of course, worsening US-China relations, and now this terrible war in Ukraine. I mean, The last two decades have really not been kind to those assumptions. 
the question, I guess, is how does an organization like OSF adapt to this new reality? I mean, broadly speaking, do you double down or do you adjust expectations? And this could apply across many different areas. It could apply to international law, for example. Do you double down on some of the post-1990 norms, international justice in particular? Or do you instead try to claw back the post-1945 international laws, which themselves are eroding territorial integrity, sovereignty, trying to get people to better respect international humanitarian law, IHL? It could apply also to democracy, which we talked about. Do you focus on particular individual rights or more broadly on getting democracies to deliver on redistribution? You could even look at it in terms of, again, what we talked about with the Security Council. Do you push for more serious council reform, which we all recognise is necessary so that the council represents power in the world today? Or do you instead try to get the council to be as effective as it can in mitigating suffering in an era of more wars, of major power tensions? You could even look at how this applies to peacemaking. Do you push always for more inclusive peacemaking? Or do you accept that, sadly, imperfect deals between warlords brokered by non-democratic regional powers are better than nothing? I realise that it's hard to generalise, but so broadly speaking, is there a response to a world that turned out differently to the one many people thought was coming in the 1990s? Is there a response to double down? Because doing less would set the bar too low, would let people off the hook? Or is it about adapting expectations and working with what you can, sort of more the art of the possible? Well, look, both Open Society and Crisis Group are uh, post-Cold War baby boomers who hit middle age with a big bump. Uh, and, um, you know, our world has suddenly changed around us and horizons and ceilings appeared to have, have lowered. But I think, you know, what we've got to keep the eye on is the main game here. And I think I look at it in this case for, for open society. You know, we as a foundation have essentially two kinds of capital. We have urgent capital, which we can spend more quickly and with more risk taking against immediate problems than a public actor can. And then we have patient capital, which is invested in trying to build a future uh, that is going to be better for everybody. And I think on the urgent capital side, one's got to sort of in a very selective way, try and nudge international justice or nudge the international financial institutions through all of the sort of short term threats they face towards a future where they are more representative, where international justice is preserved, but adapted uh, to the norms and needs of now. Um, but that the patient capital bit is to recognize that, you know, history does throw up after periods of chaos, new governing ideas that, you know, the neoliberal collapse is not going to be followed by a indefinite period of confusion about governing models. We will arrive at a point, I suspect, of stronger government, both multilaterally and nationally, uh, smaller markets, which are more regionalized and uh, more built around friendshoring and politics and economic efficiency. Um, but that within that, you know, the key piece for open society is to kind of keep the flame of freedom and individual rights and indeed collective rights alive, that these governments are accountable to citizens, that that doesn't get lost in this period of change. And that's, I suspect, a 10 year project. And it's not 
that we ourselves write that new sort of manifesto of what future government looks like. It's that we seed the institutions, the social movements, the ideas of others uh, to build the debate about what is a well-governed future which respects individual rights uh, but governs in an inclusive way that makes for a juster and fairer world. And I think, you know, we're at that pivot point you know, the world will have to have stronger government, but it's very much in play, whether it's stronger authoritarian government or stronger democratic government. And without sort of falling into always labeling it authoritarian, populist versus democratic, whatever, we've just got to keep a beady eye on the values we want to see preserved and at the heart of that new governing order as it emerges and invest in securing them. And maybe hope that the the path to finding this new governing order uh, doesn't come through through war again, uh, in essence. I agree. But, you know, we also have to, I think, you know, open society like Crisis Group are organisations which have always had a sort of a, a healthy realism and pragmatism at their core, as well as a healthy sense of history and uh, intellectual uh, ideas and debate. And all of those mindsets, both the pragmatic and the historians, make you believe that the transition from one order to another is sadly rarely not accompanied by violence of some kind. And I think whether it is crisis group or ourselves, and we're partners in this, you know, we all have to anticipate that it's going to be a rather dangerous, violent world for a period ahead of us and do our best to use our urgent capital and the analytical powers of crisis group to try and navigate those shoals as much as possible for all those innocent people whose lives could get caught up in the potential conflagrations ahead. Mark, thanks so much for coming on. Thank you, Richard. Hold Your Fire is a production of the International Crisis Group. I'm Richard Atwood. You can find all of Crisis Group's work on our website, crisisgroup.org. You can also follow us on Twitter at Crisis Group. Thanks to our producers, Kevin Murphy, Heiko Schaub, Thanks, of course, to all of you, our listeners. Please do get in touch, podcast at crisisgroup.org, or you can write to me directly, outward at crisisgroup.org. If you have any questions, suggestions, or concerns, if you like the show, please do leave us a positive rating or review. Next week's episode is going to look at Nigeria's elections. Big vote this year. So I very much hope you'll join us again for that.